Hey there, it's Nathan with you on the Dumbo Feather Podcast. You might have noticed a few more episodes from us coming through your feed lately. We've been feeling compelled to to speak to this moment, be present to this moment of COVID-19 and share how we're processing all the changes happening within and around us. Barry, our publisher, she's been going deep with uh, alumni and friends of the Dumbo Feather community. And what we're about to share with you in this episode is no exception. She's in dialogue with three Jungian therapists. And what we've got is a teaser from a new Small Giants podcast series being launched today titled Myths, Morals and Money, in which the four of them examine our economic system and the planetary crisis through a Jungian lens. Barry will tell you more in a sec, but if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts, Myths, Morals and Money. They've just dropped the first four episodes. Welcome to Myths, Morals and Money, where we analyse our current economic system and planetary crisis through a Jungian lens. I'm Barry Liberman from Small Giants and Dumbo Feather, and joining me are my three co-hosts and Jungian analysts, Joseph Lee, Lisa Marciano and Deborah Stewart from This Jungian Life. This conversation was recorded in early March 2020 as the COVID-19 pandemic really started to hit home in Australia and the US. As the situation changes worldwide by the day and by the hour, we consider what vulnerabilities in our modern systems are being exposed right now and how we might use this event to return to truths and become more resilient and hopefully create a more resilient system and society on the other side. In Melbourne today, I think it's probably going to be the last day of school for a month. Um, Word on the news this morning was that they're going to shut down the schools for a month. Wow. So we will probably head down to the country. We've got a farm and we'll be farming. Uh, And... And um, the Grand Prix is in Melbourne. So this morning I heard the cars, because it's really loud in the city. So I heard the cars zooming around and I'm like, oh, the Grand Prix is good. And then they've just half an hour ago cancelled the Grand Prix. Mm. Wow. Well, we're, we've landed in the new economics, haven't we? Of You're going to go to the country and farm. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to stay in Florida, likely. Uh, and, read books and take uh, walks in this very sort of uncrowded place. And um, it's we're in a new economic reality, aren't we? Yeah. And that theme of addiction we were talking about is so interesting because China hasn't been buying, you know, buying as much coal and... Mm -hmm. iron ore and sort of raw minerals from us and Australia's Prime Minister is frantically trying to avoid a recession. And um, no one is sort of treating it. I I don't kind of know where we are as a collective unconscious as opposed to where we were. Like in Jung's time, there was still a sense of collective, I was going to say decency, but also that... um, uh, community, uh, you know, keep calm and carry on was a thing you could say. Mm-hmm. And actually everybody took that to heart. Yes, keep calm and carry on. 
um, plant a veggie, you know, in the UK, it was plant a veggie garden in your back garden. Like everybody share food, grow food. Let's localize. Let's decentralize. Make sure mm-hmm. that we're all kind of looking out for each other. And in Australia, there was, um, a big, video going around online of two women having a punch up at the supermarket for the last rolls of toilet paper. It's the psychology of this is part of the pandemic. And I know that during the black plague, uh, societal norms broke down something fierce uh, because everyone was in survival mode. And so that's one sort of polarity. The other that occurred to me is that during World War II, uh, one of uh, Jung's biographers, I think, you know, uh, spoke about him and Marie-Louise von Franz and others that, that actually for them in Switzerland, it was a very calm and quiet time because they were isolated and they had to stay local and small, and Switzerland is a small country, and that might be another polarity. Yes, I I, um, I think communities that, that have some fabric of trust um, will conversely enjoy the peace and the quiet of this time. So, Two themes I'm noticing you're lifting up, Deb, is one that through this kind of enforced deprivation, people are forced to assess what they really need to live instead of what their appetites are or what is inessential that they invest all kinds of energy in. Mm. And so that could be one one kind of useful telos that comes out of this forced sorting process that people have to participate in. Mm. The other thing I'm looking for, Joseph, in my early notes from our conversations, we had an amazing conversation where you were talking about, oh, here it is, pathogens in the economy. Mm. And the immune system has had to be exposed to pathogens in order to develop immune responses. Well, it, I can feel that it takes some real libido to, you know, wrench ourselves out of the physicality of the conversation. Um, because I think that's where all the energy is that are, is my body safe? Are the bodies of my children safe? And to be able to sublimate for a little bit, to kind of rise up into a more metaphoric level, which Jung said really is helpful. That can give us some breathing room, is to be able to talk about this as a metaphor uh, and then free ourselves up out of the panic of it. So this idea that some kind of what pathogen is being introduced like a vaccination to cause a systemic change that then will create a resilience to perhaps even a greater devastation. And when you were saying, Lisa, that, yeah, this may only last for two or four weeks, but boy, it gives the the collective psyche a taste of of what is going to happen if we don't tend to some of the vulnerabilities in the fabric of society, which has become international. As I've been talking with clients this week, and of course everyone has this on their mind, I'm finding most of my clients are really remarkably resilient. 
I'm not finding any of the clients that are really in a blind panic. You know, I have clients that are you know, physicians and financiers and just a real spectrum of society, school teachers. And at least here in Virginia, I feel like people are holding a pretty temperate, um, not overly reactive attitude, which I think is, um, is reassuring, at least for the time being. Well, I mean, people shouldn't be panicking, but on the other hand, you know, our government is not doing enough. It's not taking the steps that we need to take to flatten the curve. So I'm I'm very worried about um, what things are going to look like in the United States in a week to 10 days, two weeks, something like that. I was just um, listening to a report about how Germany is responding and because they have a history of having too much power dangerously accumulating at their federal level, that their government is structured in such a way that the federal government is prohibited from making taking blanket control oh, of wow. their culture. So much of the message from their government has been, you know, we trust the German citizens, we trust the villages, the local governments to know what's happening and to respond in the best way as citizens of this nation. Whoa. Interesting. And moving in a certain way remains to be seen. In that same conversation, they said, we expect 70% of the German population to be infected before this is over. Oh, my God. Goodness. Yeah, those, those are the those are the numbers that I'm hearing too. Me too. Right. For Germany or for here? Everywhere. Everywhere. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So we're just absorbing that fact and and when when we I feel that kind of bit of a gasp Part of it, I think, also is we we really don't know what it means. And whenever something intense is brooding in the environment and we don't know what it means, we scramble around in our imaginations. We scramble around for meaning and images and intuitions. We start casting about, but then that makes us so vulnerable to um, to misinterpreting what's happening in the way that all projection can make us so vulnerable. It's hard to hold back until more facts emerge. It feels uh, like it, it goes against our natural instinct to find safety. But I also think that's probably what's required. I agree. But from my little corner where I've been watching this, it's been heartening to me to see so many people taking responsibility for each other by self-isolating. Because that's really what it's about. Choosing to stay home is, is not really so much so that I won't get sick. It's so that I won't become a vector that spreads it to other people. So it feels, at least at this point, the places I've been reading, it feels like we're taking responsibility for each other by choosing to stay home. What that makes me think of, Lisa, is actually the word pandemic. Pan just means universal or all. And demos is where we get the word democracy from, which means people. So the word pandemic simply means all people. Yeah, it's, this so is a great it's, leveler. Yeah. 
It's the evocation of the global community of all people. Now, the question is, what's moving in the pandemos? So as you're saying, Lisa, you're paying attention to this trending um, attitude that is moving through the pandemos of um, restraining, self-restraining one's freedom to protect other people. Right. That's in the pandemos, as well as this this viral, this bit of DNA that's infecting people is in the pandemos as well. I think people, like all the conferences around the world are being cancelled. No one's flying. Businesses are shut down. So we're seeing the economy grind, the global economy grind to an absolute halt. And I will say secretly for almost everyone, there's a feeling of relief Mm -hmm. that they can get off the treadmill of the machine that we were talking about feeding, that we all feed this hungry machine and for the next month, if everyone's self-isolating and the global community, what's moving in us is like rest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, fear and rest. Um, and, and maybe this kind of moment to breathe and think about what is of most value and how we spend our time. I'm, I'm curious to see how the world reorganizes itself what happens when the economy is ground to a halt, it's of course an opportunity to look at all the pressure points, to look at the system itself. But I don't think that opportunity will be taken because of the fear. And I was looking online yesterday, there was this brilliant tweet sent out, oh, if only global warming had coronavirus's publicist. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Right on. Yeah. Yeah. That is brilliant. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the what the pause will do to everyone because it's you know twelve days away from social unrest. Hmm. Hmm. What I what I love that you're bringing up, um, Barry, is is the idea that telos. If we believe that telos or purposiveness is ever present, even though it may be incredibly obscure that the universe is purposive, then for us to lay that question at what is a p- possible purposive direction that something like the coronavirus might be in service to. Oh, yeah. And I love that frame, that could it be in service to forcing the pandemos, the collective, to pause, reflect, turn within to become quiet to have to to have to go down into themselves into what's basic it's and, like the ne- uh, the necessary pathogen has entered the system that is sick and to me i hear all this fear around the kind of collapsing of the systems, but the systems were not in service to something connected to our well-being. This is like when we talk about coal not being exported to China, people not flying as much, pollution is completely so vastly reduced and there's proof of it. There's evidence. I think the economy is just the, the way that we measure success our 
social success is so off course. And that's the opportunity we have right now because we should be measuring well-being. I'm back on uh, the idea that there is and could be some relief and that people could discover that despite, and I'm not minimizing anxieties about, uh, you know, how will people pay the rent or uh, be, be able to buy food or something, but uh, we may experience individuals and a collective a kind of relief in having it all stop. A lot of the things we take for granted. And I can also imagine uh, people experiencing anxiety as um, the relief of staying home and, and reading books or taking a walk in a very kind of quiet neighborhood where you don't bump into anyone, that that may wear thin and that that could be an opportunity to look within of, wow, I, I really need all these distractions. My daily schedule and my commute on the subway or the highway and pressures at work and answering all the emails. But it is an interesting question of what will happen, what will we experience uh, emotionally, personally when all that stuff goes away? Or a lot of it goes away. Deb, that reminds me of people who have dared to go on a long, silent retreat. And how many modern folks are really anxious about, you know, what's it going to be like to not talk for 10 days or 30 days? And then upon coming back, they're often astounded at how much life there is in them, how much actually is happening in them when they're not outwardly focused. I'll bet not all of it is always pleasant and much of it can be rather challenging, but it's full of life. I love that. <laughs> Imagine if we, if the pause, if we all were on a silent retreat for the next two weeks and we heard without all the industry, if we actually heard how alive the world is. And we're able to value that. I wanted to come back to a thought I had when we were talking about the canceling of these enormous events. And, uh, of course, the economic repercussions, um, the social repercussions. And what I suddenly was, was feeling is how much of our world is is actually simply structured on agreements. Yeah. And when we're participating in the world, it all seems so solid and so immutable, and we can't possibly change that or make these decisions, or it's always going to be this way. And that literally a couple of people just change their minds. And all of a sudden, a billion-dollar event is over. Not happening. Yeah. An entire NBA season, not going to happen. Harvard sent home. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, like the world is nothing more than a bunch of agreements 
which in one sense is really mutable, like amazingly mutable, but also amazingly fragile. That people, just a bunch of people are making up their mind one way or another. And all of this that flows out of it. Yeah. It's a, it's what a demonstration of that. Yeah. And how rapidly and drastically it can change, which yeah. sort of really um, gives the lie to how difficult it is to change and how much, how long it takes. And uh, we have to have agreements and meetings and governments and legalizations. And no, it can turn on a dime and it can change. You know, I'm thinking that one of the things the pandemic has done on a society, a societal level, is similar to what Jung called the relativization of the ego. And what that means is that we have a sense of how small our ego is in relationship to the self in relationship to something that's uh, much, much bigger than us, that's transcendent. Then we, we understand just how small we are. And I think that this disease is so big and so uh, dangerous and so unpredictable in a way that it reminds us that we are not in charge of this world. And what an amazing, useful event for us because for me I really feel like this is a dry run for what's coming and and that sounds horrific to say but I, I I'm not the only one that's saying it and I think we're we're dealing not with Ebola luckily this is a, a milder dry run of of what has been predicted if it's not the conditions of environmental um, vast environmental change. It's going to hit us. It's all bigger than us. Last night, we went out to a restaurant. It's a fabulous French bistro walking distance from our house. And it felt like I've been described what it was like in the war, the way people kind of drank and ate and the music was playing and everyone was kind of in the laneway, this beautiful laneway on a balmy night. And there was this frisson in the air of everyone going, "Is it, I could feel, is this the last time we're going to be allowed to gather together yeah. and drink wine and, and eat and, and be playful and social and that we need it. I felt so soothed by being with everyone after a, a very stressful day. And I thought, shit, when are we not going to be able to be near each other? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel personally like my I'm at my office, which has usually got 100 people swirling around. There's maybe 10 people here today. It's the feeling of ghost towns and, you know, ghostly spaces that are uninhabited. I just flew through Heathrow on Tuesday and Heathrow Airport was empty. It was very bizarre. And going back to, as we were saying, that image of isolation, you know, will people experience this is also, you know, some op-eds are coming out of Italy and people are talking about feeling imprisoned. You know, when this really? comes, yes, when it comes from the top down. Because I'm like, if I wanted, if I was going to be stuck anywhere, like Italy, right? 
I was just thinking the Italians are the coolest and they've got all that amazing agriculture and all that, you know, they're the ultimate sort of self-sustaining community. They know how to do all the pickling, all the preserving, all the, you know, smoking of the things. We all rely on Italy. And I was thinking actually about Florence and all of the kind of hotspots in Italy that have been smashed by Instagram tourism. You know, you can't go to the Trevi Fountain without a thousand people around you taking selfies, not even experiencing the Trevi Fountain. And now that we can't go to the Trevi Fountain, I'm, I was like fantasizing this morning. What is Rome like oh, today? There were I'm some. Just- there were some photo essays on. I saw them online somewhere of just like the Spanish steps with not a soul. All of these places just empty. And I'm sure the Romans and the Florentines are all kind of loving that. Yeah. <laughs> just in that image is that we hope that some of those places will become hallowed again. Mm. We hope that, that in the space, the sacred will reemerge when the secular retreats from it. And hopefully that will some places be true. And then, of course, some people are reacting to it as a, as an image of blight. But I think that speaks much to what we bring to those images. That's an amazing thought. Will the sacred reemerge when the secular retreat? That's such a great, uh, dramatic, and apropos uh, image of opposites, Joseph, which was such a huge part of Jung's theory. Uh, Will it be, can it be a call to the sacred, or will we experience it simply as a blight? Uh, and it's not going to be one or the other, of course, but it helps to lift up those uh, really archetypal opposites and that those are embedded in this pandemic. Uh, will we experience our isolation as a kind an opportunity to have a personal retreat and find more aliveness within? Or will we experience it as, I've been imprisoned uh, and, and restricted and oppressed. Um, you know, what will we make of this as individuals as well as uh, in the collective? What will we be called to psychologically? And I think, Deb, that leans into, just as an extension of what you're saying, is what will rise up to meet suffering. And so, as Lisa, you were talking about, you know, can people think of suffering as an aspect of the divine? And frankly, the more ancient religions did perceive everything as being part of a divine plan. I think uh, both in Judaism and in Catholicism, you know, there was a time when, you know, you were, you know, God has cursed me with gout, or God has brought this problem into my life for, for reasons I don't understand. But there was a way in which that could be attributed. And many modernized religions are so pleasure-centric that they they don't offer a place for um, suffering to be sacralized. And and boy, talk about a vaccine. 
to this kind of event, that kind of religious attitude that makes makes suffering, whether it's just suffering the isolation, even if this is all done in two weeks, or perhaps suffering more deeply if somebody is lost to the illness, that that is part of a religious and spiritual life for some people. That's, a, that's an area of possible resilience. It's, it's an amazing thought for me how what you were saying about whether it's a retreat, like this opportunity for sacred retreat or a prison and whether we'll be, yeah, I, I, it feels like such an opportunity even though the fear is humming all around it because we don't hold sacred space. We're all on our phones the economy itself has isolated us from each other and from our inner lives. So this is such a shocking way of plugging back in and we'll probably do everything we can, including kill each other, to avoid the sacred reconnection with ourselves and the planet. And so I'm sorry to be sort of dooms day about it but I'm feeling like it's I don't know I I, I wanted to do this podcast because I thought we had time to put these mythopoetic ideas in the world and that they would be the medicine I really thought we had time and I'm just worried that we don't have time and I'm and I'm struggling with faith and trust You know, I also think that this is a moment where we're being asked to face our fate and we have, we must turn toward it or, or, um, you know, or we don't and we, we simply falter. But if we're going to, uh, rally both as individuals and as a collective, we need to turn and face this. Uh, you know, and Barry, I think your point about this is sort of the dry run for what comes next is is really relevant. Now is the time. <laughs> now is the time to face our fate. Oh, and maybe in in that in that amazing amazing provocation, Lisa, I'd go back to what was said earlier. <clears throat> As we're facing our fate, what are the new agreements mm-hmm. that we make mm-hmm. with ourselves and with each other? Yep. And that those agreements are based on reality. Because when we face these fates or these immutable facts, like a virus, an immutable fact, that the agreements ideally would be based on these facts and not on fantasies, not on appetites, not on insubstantial things that then set these great gears of the world in motion like fantasies around the stock market, fantasies about unlimited growth or unlimited wealth. So accepting fate has to do with accepting reality and the medicinal value of reality, the corrective value of reality. 
I, I wanted to come back to what you had said, Barry, about whether or not your faith and trust, you know, will will survive this or will hold you in good stead. And I'm not sure exactly what you meant by that, but what it evoked in me was that for some people, faith and trust is built on a kind of innocence. And the universe is generally not very kind to innocence, by the way. And a kind of innocent feeling that things will get better. So having faith that things will get better is uh, can be shaky ground. But perhaps if we have faith and trust that we will be strong enough to bear the facts, that's a kind of faith and trust that we might have in reach. And to get that, our innocence will probably be violated and probably need to be. Uh, I was gunning for the innocence version of the story, so. And that's why people (laughs) keep thinking that they should return to Eden. You know, that, that innocent place where Adam and Eve didn't know right from wrong, they had no knowledge, they they just walked in this state of unknowing, uh, which was a kind of bliss and and something archetypal in this bliss that we hope for. But it was by leaving that innocence that that consciousness develops, albeit at the cost of suffering. And I'm thinking about, you know, if I imagine Adam and Eve or various other things, of what did they feel when they got booted out of the garden? Uh, what does it feel like to lose one's innocence? And can we have uh, faith and, and just an awareness uh, of how important it is to feel those feelings of upset or or betrayal, fear, vulnerability, helplessness, uh, rather than displacing them into um, accusation or blame. There's a huge feeling component here that goes along with the suffering that can bring us to a greater consciousness, including the consciousness of this is our fate right now. This is simply what is. And that hard to do. That's a big part of, of psychoanalysis, isn't it? Of that there are certain givens. How do we suffer it, grieve it, and then come to face our fate? Speaking of innocence, there's this quote I really love by Robertson Davies. He says, one always learns one's mystery at the price of one's innocence. Yeah. And I think that it does show that there's an opportunity. There's an yeah. opportunity to find our mystery. So there is well said. So there is a call for each of us in this and in other life crises to do exactly that. To to suffer what has mysteriously and unfortunately come our way and find ourselves in it in some new way. 
And even the word innocent comes from the Latin nocere, which means to harm. So to be innocent means to be harmless. And and if we have an innocent faith and trust, we're hoping to return to a worldview that is free of harm. And when we come up against the vicissitudes of life, whether they are, um, you know, as small as all the failures that we experience in childhood or as devastating as a as a terrible illness or a global catastrophe like you know the the holocaust that the the hope that the world will be harmless or or I will never experience harm is sacrificed on that altar of reality and yet we can't be effective unless we have our hands on reality on the fatedness of some immutable facts. I guess I was talking about um, also faith to remake the world. Yes, in your strength. Because, yeah, because we, you know, Viktor Frankl with his thesis around logotherapy is we, we take man as he is, if we take man as he is, he'll drift to much less than. But if we reach for the ideal, we'll drift to man as he ought to be. And I've always thought Victor was a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> given his extraordinary story as a survivor of Auschwitz and a psychotherapist, who talked about man's search for meaning, I always thought, yeah, okay, I'm going to go for the ideal and we can drift to to man as he ought to be. And I, I have had some, you know, with the stress in the system, I both knew like in my sort of gut that we were going to experience the break, breaking of the system, that we were going to witness the you know, the stress points just burst and and see what we're seeing. And it's kind of an extraordinary opportunity to be alive right now. If you can, Joseph, as you said, sort of get up above your fear and anxiety and the bodily harm. Um, But I had always had, which I guess you can have when you're just projecting ideas in, into an emerging future, I had faith that we could remake the world. And now I'm just shaky. Um, <laughs> it's only day one of the pandemic. Um, yeah, no, I, I guess it's um, where the rubber meets the road is when you're witnessing the moment of truth. Do you mean, um, you know, when we first met, one another, uh, that that was your hope was to be able to remake the world and now it's different? I think when I first started listening to your podcast Uh and I was seeing that you were all talking, like, of course, I was applying it to the systems I'm looking at all the time and I, and I, and I knew we need more medicine, we need more depth, we need more richness, we need more humanity. We need to be reminded of our capacity to love life and to lean into the deepest parts of ourselves to to frame issues, to frame our thinking. That's what you guys do. So I would listen to your podcast and I would be reminded of my own inner richness. Mm. 
And I was like, oh, thanks, you guys. You held the space for the part of me that I forgot on the treadmill of life or that I thought or had squashed or or suppressed. And then when I thought of us talking about the systems together through my story, I don't know what I was thinking, but um, I, I just wanted to remind ourselves and remind whoever wants to listen that we have such unbelievable capacity for beauty and richness and love and thoughtfulness. And we could come at all of, like we could remake the world from that place or it could be in the mix. Uh, And maybe we're going to remake the world from a very different place, a place of suffering, a place of crisis, a place of um, real choice points at the macro and at the micro level. So suffering, I think, aids in the breaking down of defenses and and fantasies that and and agreements that are based in nothing substantial. And it's a leveling place. And what I hear you saying, Barry, is you know, where is the wellspring of strength or vigor in terms of what will collect the disparate parts? when they are broken down and and what i believe is true is it comes from vision but it comes from the people within whom the vision is real that there is an authority that people carry when a, a vision has chosen to embody in them and then they are able to collect the disorganized pieces of a culture or a psyche so so part of the i think the sorting process will be in the dissolving dust of things is who is holding the vision or the visions that people will rally to and and that remains to be seen for yourself you have a vision of beauty which involves love and harmony and equity and aesthetic for that matter, a vision of beauty. And that is a viable vision and the children of beauty will rally to that. But not all humans are the sons and daughters of beauty. And so there will ever be competing archetypes in in this realm, undoubtedly. So I'd like to introduce a Kabbalistic idea into the conversation, just which we actually have been saying yeah. in a number of different ways. And in the Sefer Yetzirah, which is uh, the book of creation, which is um, a creation myth that most Jews are aware of because it introduces the alphabet to them, um, even as children. But it's actually a very profound meditative text. And it says that Binah is the root of faith and its roots are in Amen. And Bina means understanding. So if we pull that into vernacular a bit, that understanding is the root of faith, and its roots are in Amen, and Amen uh, means truth in Hebrew. Understanding is the root of faith, and its roots are in truth. 
so faith is not ephemeral. Faith is not a mystical gift uh, that you just have to have faith for no reason. That faith has muscle on it. And we develop faith through having a penetrating thirst to understand. And in understanding, to uncover what is true. And what is true is what is sustaining and not just fantastical. And that gives us a kind of muscularity in our position and a kind of strength to move with reality in such a way that thriving is possible. And I think there's much reason to cling to that feeling that understanding and faith and truth have an abiding, sustaining vitality in them. And that the chaos that we move through is a necessary dissolution of forms, Mm -hmm. of thought, forms of agreement, philosophies that have outworn whatever usefulness they might have originally had. I really just think that um, you've spoken real wisdom, Joseph. I really do. And um, I actually want to uh, dare to maybe bring that down even closer to Earth in the sense of um, talking sense to ourselves. And I'm, I'm particularly thinking about what you said about uh, what is really sustaining versus what is fantastical. Uh, how, how do we talk sense to ourselves and do the things that are sustaining? Uh, and that takes me back to, you know, what you said the last time in evoking, uh, the image of the field. And I really kind of uh, like that as a field of influence of who are the people that we um, come in, in contact with. And, you know, it might be a young mother with three little kids and they keep her busy all day. There's a baby, there's a two-year-old, and there's a four-year-old. Um, and it might be somebody who operates in a huge national field and we use the example of Gandhi. Uh, but the this the business of talking sense, making sense, and then doing what is sensible of uh, whether it's inspiring a nation to uh, spin their own flax or whether it's um, not projecting fear outward, not uh, evading it, avoiding it. Um, but somehow coming to a new sense of what is and what is it that I can do and should do that is sustaining today. This podcast is brought to you by Small Giants with the help of our producers at Podfly. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands we create 
on in both Australia and the United States. You can read show notes and find additional resources on our website, smallgiants.com.au. You can also join the conversation and let us know what you think on Instagram at smallgiants. And we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review so that more people can find us. If you'd like to hear more from Lisa, Deb and Joseph, make sure you also subscribe to their incredible podcast, This Jungian Life. And you can hear more from me, Derry, on the Dumbo Feather podcast. Thanks for listening. Lots of love.